Our Old Testament lesson is found in 1 Kings chapter 15. We're focusing today on verses 19 through 24, but we'll be looking across a broader section through chapter 16 at the close of the reign of King Omri in the northern in northern Israel at verse 28. 1 Kings 15, verses 9 through 24. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah, and he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. He also removed Makkah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook of Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. And he brought into the house of the Lord the sacred gifts of his father and of his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. And there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took all the silver and the gold that were left in the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and gave them into the hands of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Trebrinim the son of Hezion, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending to you a present of silver and gold. Go break your covenant with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel and conquered Ejon, Dan, Abel Beth Makkah, and all Chinneroth, and all the land of Naphtali. And when Baasha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah, and he lived in Tirzah. Then King Asa made a proclamation to all Judah. None was exempt, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber, in which Baasha had been building, and with them King Asa built Geba of Benjamin and Mitzpah. Now the rest of the, all the acts of Asa, all his might, and all that he did, and the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in his old age, he was diseased in his feet, and Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father, and Jehoshaphat his son reigned in his place. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come today and we acknowledge all of our weakness. And we ask today that you will speak. Guide us into all truth in accord with your promise that you've made through your son. And so, Lord, speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. During the second generation of the Reformation, after the great turn of the church in the, on the European continent, from the grip and the hold of idolatrous worship, the second generation of reformers began to note something, that simply because the Reformation had happened, simply because the Reformation had taken place, that the church was not then somehow secure, 
that it was not somehow safe. And so there was a slogan developed that the Reformed church was always to be reforming, that the church renewed was constantly in need of renewal. And as we come to 1 Corinthians, I mean 1 Kings in chapter 15, as we read the history of the northern tribes of Israel and the history of the southern tribes of Israel, we see the same truth. The church in need of reform and the church constantly in need of reforming. Through the fall, we plan to follow the reigns of the kings of Judah and Israel through 1 Kings. And as we read these narratives, it is important, crucial to remember that this book is relaying historical events with names that are difficult to pronounce in places that are far off and feel very remote. But as we do so, we must always remember that this book is not simply a historical record. No, it chronicles for us the fidelity and the failures. It chronicles for us the virtues and the vices. It chronicles for us the obedience and the disobedience of the rulers of the northern and the southern kingdoms and all their citizens. It speaks about then and there, things that happened long ago. But through the then and there, it is designed to teach us about here and now. And in this book, God graciously invites us to listen. He invites us to reflect in order to learn about him, to learn about his ways with us, and also as a mirror to learn about ourselves. And so this is history, but it's not merely history. It's history with a strong and sharp prophetic age, edge. In chapters 15 and 16, the history somewhat shifts into hyperdrive. It goes very quickly, covering 60 years in the span of these two chapters. And the events are fairly repetitive and boring and somewhat depressing. A king comes to power. A king reigns. A king engages in idolatry. A king wars against his neighbors. And then he dies. As chapter 15 begins... It's even virtually impossible to tell the difference between the northern and the southern kingdoms because they're both engaged in idolatrous acts. But in 1 Kings 15, verse 9, God breaks open that monotonous cycle, all of that idolatry, and he shatters the repetition of idolatrous king after idolatrous king. In a barren waste, God intervenes, and he reforms the church. He does something fresh. He does something new. And friends, when you look at it, there really is no explanation for this reformation. Asa was the child of an incestuous marriage. He was the son of an idolatrous mother. And he is the heir of three generations of idolatrous practitioners in Judah. That's not necessarily a blue chip heritage. But God in his grace interrupts all of that generational cycle, all the momentum that was informing this man's life, and he intervenes. And we find here a 41-year reign, a faithful king. After being introduced to Asa in verses 9 through 24, we then march through five different kings of the northern tribes of Israel. 
It's easy to separate these things and not think of them as happening together. These kings are Nadab, Baasha, Elah, Zimri, and Omri. And they are one spectacular failure after another. And those five different kings actually all overlap with Asa. As he was reigning in the southern kingdom, they were going through their repetitive cycles in the northern kingdom. So these kings follow Asa in the chapter, but they actually overlap with him. And all of this, just from a good reading standpoint, is designed to draw our attention to Asa. That this exception, this monument standing in the middle of chaos and ruin, emerges for us, calling our attention to his reformation and what God wants to do for the church And so what is it exactly that we learned this morning about church reform? Three things that we will highlight. First, we will discover what reform looks like. Second, we'll also consider what hinders reform. And then finally, we'll consider why reform happens. So let's look at each of these briefly this morning. First, we do see what reform looks like. In verse 11, we read the unusual, the general evaluation of Asa's reign. We become quite familiar with the phrase, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. But in verse 11, we discover this new phrase, and Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. This is repeated, this evaluation is repeated in verse 14, where we learn that the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all of his days. Now, it's important to point out when that phrase, he was wholly true to the Lord all of his days, this is not a claim on Asa's perfection. In fact, in this passage, we'll see he was far from that. But rather in the context of 1 Kings, in the biblical context of a covenant, what this means to have a true heart is to be like David, that is to be devoted to God and to not be devoted to idols, worshiping and serving him alone without entertaining idolatrous practices. And so Asa was a man devoted to God. In verses 12 and 13, and once again in verse 15, Asa's reforms are cataloged for us, if you follow along. He put away the cult prostitutes, we learn first in verse 12. And we also learned that he removed the idols installed by his fathers. He undoes the intergenerational entanglements that had taken place in the idolatry. He removed his mother from her high position. She was the queen mother and he took her out of that privileged position. He removed her idol, the Asherah. The Asherah is the consort of the god Baal and he destroyed it. He burned it with fire. And then positively, in verse 15, this is what we learn, is he devotes his energies and resources to the temple. He is reconcentrating his energies on the temple, promoting pure worship of the people of God. Now, at first glance, this can seem rather unimpressive to us, just because the context is so remote and so far back in history. But it's critical for us to recognize here that Asa, in all of these actions, was standing against the tide. He's countering enormous cultural forces that are enshrined in Judah's life. 
he challenged the ethical practices of those around him at their ritual shrines. The god Baal and his consort, Asherah, were the fertility gods. And so there were certain rituals that would play out around the notions of fertility. And Asa challenges all of that idolatrous practice, but not simply bowing oneself before a metal image, but also all the practices and all the economics connected to it. Asa commits himself to a theological agenda, pouring his interest and pouring his efforts into the temple. Asa's reforms come at a cost to himself. He deposes his own mother, removes her from a position of power. But chiefly, what Asa does is he challenges the beliefs of the church, and he confronts them in their idolatry. Now, as we recognize this, it's critical that we all own that this confrontation of the beliefs of the church was not simply an intellectual battle. It was not simply about proper doctrine and proper belief. Because we have to appreciate something about ancient idolatry that actually connects it today to modern idolatry. But the attraction for Israel to idolatry, particularly to Baal and to Asherah, was that these gods addressed areas of human life where we experience incredible weakness and vulnerability. It was around these concepts of fertility that the gods Baal and Asherah were the fertility gods who gave life. They produced heirs. They gave rain for the crops. They gave food to eat. They gave the vital necessities of life. And you can imagine in the ancient world all of the vulnerability, all of the fragility. And yes, it could be claimed that Yahweh, the God of Israel, gave all of these things. But in that time and space, it would have been very tempting just to say, well, it's good to hedge your bets and keep all your bases covered. Why not also include these other gods who also promise to give these things? And so Asa did not merely encounter idols as objects. He wasn't simply destroying metal objects. He was encountering a church that had transferred its trust, that had transferred its affections from the true and living God who promised to sustain them and give them everything necessary for life as they served him. And they transferred that trust to someone and to something else. And friends, so Asa was not simply in a battle of beliefs, of intellectual beliefs. He was battling for the hearts of the people. When my oldest son was young and we were in the process of potty training him, there was this massive reversion that took place at one point along the timeline. And so as Melissa and I discussed how we were going to get him back on track We were really uncertain. We had taken away different things and thought about different incentives and how to induce him to get him out of diapers. Because let's face it, we were broke. (laughs) We needed him out of diapers. (laughs) With number two tearing through the diapers, we needed number one out of diapers. And so then we discovered something. 
when there was a bad performance, because he had demonstrated that he could do all of this, you know, and it was purely about control, that Thomas the Train was put up on the mantelpiece. And the mantelpiece in this particular house was pretty high. And then if there was another infraction, Percy would end up on the mantelpiece. And then if there was another infraction, yet another train. I can't remember all the names at this point. And so the, the entourage grew, you could say. <laughs> and one day, I remember walking into the den, and there is my oldest son, Sim, staring up at all of his trains, thinking it through, understanding that we're trying to induce him. And I knew at that point, forever, the best way to punish my son, the best way to induce him, because we were striking at something that was precious to him. And friends, we have to appreciate this about Asa, that as he angles in on the idolatry of Israel, he is striking at something that was precious to them, something they thought was needed for life, believing and trusting in these fertility gods that sustained them. And so, friends, it took a great deal of courage, and this is the nature of church reform. In Geneva, during the time of John Calvin, as he ministered there in the church, there was a particular practice that took place, rather humorous when you read the history of it. But there was a saint who had lived in the area, and his name was Claude, Saint Claude, and many people had associated many different idolatrous practices around Claude. There were pilgrimages and there were relics and there was all kinds of superstitious belief about if you did things in Claude's name, then Claude would bless you from his heavenly position today. And so in that first generation of the Reformation, there was a lot of effort put into, in Geneva, in that local context, unseating Claude. But one of the things that would happen in order to bless their child that at baptism, parents would name their child Claude. Just as we ask the name of Oliver today, so it was asked, what is the name of your son? And the parents would respond, Claude. And then the Genevan ministers with great audacity would rename the child, spot naming them, ignoring what the parents have said. If you can imagine that happening today renaming the child publicly, it caused an uproar and a fury. But friends, they were undoing and confronting idolatrous practice that had become deeply enshrined, but it's enshrined not in just belief. We have to get past that. It's enshrined in the heart. It reflects the trust of the people. And friends, an idol is anything that we transfer our trust to our well-being to, other than the living God. It can be an object that we bow before. It can be a false conception of God. It can be an ideology, or it can be something like money or relationship or career. Idolatry is deceptive and incredibly powerful because we entrust ourselves to it. And friends, this is what reform seeks to address. And it's what reform looks like. That yes, it has external components to it. The destruction and the removal of idols. But yet also the confrontation of our spiritual trust. 
and where our confidence is found. But second, we also see in Asa's life what hinders reform. We noted that Asa was fully devoted to the Lord. That is in the same sense that David was. He did not engage in idolatry. It's a wonderful compliment, encouragement, and exhortation to us as we read Kings. This doesn't mean that he was sinless, and it doesn't mean that he was perfectly righteous. In fact, when we move into verse, four, uh, into verse 16 and descend towards the end of the passage, we see something quite different. In fact, we learn that Asa's reforms in verse 14 were somewhat limited, that Asa did not remove the high places of Israel. These were shrines where people would worship various gods, and they may even worship the God of Israel, Yahweh, at the high place, but they were not to go to the high places to worship. They were to go to the one temple, the one altar, and worship there. And so Asa did not wholly purify the worship of Israel. We're told that he came up short in this category. However, we also find this extensive list, a story of actions that Asa took that reveals something else about him that hinders reform. In verses 16 through 24, Asa is in conflict with the northern tribes, Baasha, the king of Israel. And Baasha builds a city, a fortified city called Ramah, it's important to understand that this city is only a few miles north of Jerusalem. And so this is like a blockade. It sets up a functional embargo. No one could come and go from Jerusalem without passing Ramah. And so this created a crisis for Asa. He was stuck. The chips were down. Asa is now formally under pressure and he had to do something. And so he formulates a plan. He concocts a strategy about how to deal with this. Turn your attention to verses 18, 19. Then Asa took all the silver and the gold that were in the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and gave them into the hands of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, son of Hezion, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a covenant between me and you as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending to you a present. And that verb could be, or that noun could be translated bribe. Sent to you a bribe of silver and gold. Go break your covenant with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And so Asha's actions, they were shrewd. It was conniving. And on the worldly stage, it operated with a considerable amount of wisdom, Machiavellian poise, you could say. He entered into a foreign alliance with Syria, the great power to the north. And he knew if he entered into a covenant with them, that Baasha would have to be drawn away to go and fight Syria. And it was shrewd, but it's critical to recognize that this wasn't sanctioned. That Asa had no permission from God to enter into foreign alliances, to fight his battles. 
And friends, it displays at the heart of this reforming king the divided nature of our own hearts that Asa himself struggled to trust God. And friends, it is this, the spiritual component that hinders the church in its reform. That yes, we formally align ourselves with God. We have orthodox belief. We avoid the external trappings of idolatry. But we fail to transfer our trust fully to him. What our heart truly loves, what we embrace in our inner core, we fail to yield to God. We believe in him. But in those critical moments, especially when under pressure, we crumble and we don't trust him. This is what we see with Asa. We resort to strategies that make sense to us. We turn to our own wisdom. We walk our own path. We take counsel with ourselves. And these strategies are not faithful to God's law and what he's revealed to us. And friends, this is what can challenge and hinder the reforming work of God in the church. And finally, we also learn here, though, why this reform happens. We noted earlier in the sermon that we're not offered a great deal of history, of historical explanation. That is, how this reform developed. Asa simply breaks on the scene, and we're told that he does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And so we don't know exactly how all this came to be. However, in the immediately preceding passage, it's a passage about his father, we learn something about this God who renews and reforms the church under Asa. If you follow in chapter 15, verse 3. And he walked, this is speaking of Asa's father, in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord as God, as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing, establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah, the Hittite. And friends, it's here that we learn something about this God. And we learn also the basis and the source, the root of reform. It's God's covenant that was sworn to David. We learn that David was not a perfect man himself. That an exception is noted, that David was wholly devoted to the Lord except this matter about Uriah, where he was guilty of adultery and murder. But the promise to David was sworn. God made a covenant. He gives himself and commits himself that the entire program that was sworn to Abraham has now advanced to this promise to David and to David's house. And the salvation of the world is coming through David's house. And so God raises up this new king to reform and renew the church. Not because David's great. And not because Asa is great. 
But because God is steadfast and God is faithful and he doesn't fail at his promise, he's reliable. And so the greatest word in all of this passage is found here in verse 4. Nevertheless, despite all the carnage, despite his father's sins, despite his grandfather's sins, God renews and reforms the church in the time of Asa. That his word cuts across history and intervenes, interjects, rescues, and changes. That this is what is happening. And despite all the exceptions, even in the hearts of good men like Asa, good men like David, God is faithful and God doesn't fail. He's committed to working out his plans through David's family. And friends, this continues to be the hope of the church today. That God still is working out those plans through David's family. Not as kings enthroned in a patch of turf in the Middle East. But rather as great David's greater son. Ruling at the right hand of God. The ruler of the kings of the earth. Enthroned above all. His son, our Lord Jesus. And it is Jesus' promise that he is building his church. And he brings reform, he brings renewal. And yes, there are seasons of weakness and seasons of strength. There are seasons of increase and seasons of decline. But God sends renewal, God sends revival, God sends reform because his purposes for the church don't fail. And so friends, in all the chaos of the church's life in Kings, in chapter 15 and 16, all the loss all the disgusting behaviors, all the compromise. There's the shining hope because of the nevertheless of God. And that's our great confidence still today. That promise is true and it's sure. Our Lord Jesus seals it for us. And so let's place our hopes there for all of the future of the world. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge all of our weakness, that yes, though reformed, we need constant reforming. We need your spirit at work in us, so teach us from this history and direct us as to what reform looks like and how we can transfer our trust more fully to you and keep us from our own weaknesses, our own devices, and our own desires that compromise us. Strengthen us, God. And ultimately place our trust in you. The great Lord of the church who's committed and steadfast, who never fails. Grant us your help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.